Let's then turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be starting chapter 7. I'll read from verse 1 down to verse 10. But we'll not look at it all. We'll only, I think today we'll try and stay in the first three verses. And I'll try and, and preach shorter than usual today. Since you're so fearless. I say that like, but you know, as the kids go, yes. <laughs> Chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, okay? Yeah, Debra. Okay. Let's read together. I'll read. You can read along in your own Bibles there. Hebrews chapter 7, 1 to 10. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of all the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Amen. Right. We have gone through the book. We've gone past all of the the. Uh, warm up the introductions, the warnings. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews is getting into the main portion of his message. This is the center part of the book. And this is where the real point begins to come out. This is what he wants to talk about. This is what he wants to establish in the minds of those who would hear him or read this book. This is the deeper things that he wanted to teach them. But he expressed sorrow that they would be slow of hearing, dull of hearing. That they wouldn't pick up the delicacies, the intricacies, the sophisticated teaching that he's about to teach them. It's getting into the main press. Now we understand that there were accusations being thrown at Christ by the Pharisees, by the, the, uh, the men who followed Paul around. These, the first real 
opposition to Christianity. It wasn't the Romans, it was the Judaizers. One of the things that they used to say was, how can Jesus be a priest? How can Jesus offer up a sacrifice for my sin when he does not belong to the tribe of, of Levi, of Aaron? He's not one of Aaron's descendants. He, he's not called to temple work. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And our Lord Jesus did not come from that tribe. He did not belong to that caste of men who were called to the service of the temple. A priest would serve in the temple from the age of 25 until the age of 50. It was a temporary time, time of service. And so this accusation had been made against the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was very convincing to many of the, the early Jews. They, were, they, they didn't already answer it. Ah, I know that Jesus died for my sins and that he was both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. But how do I legitimize that? How does that work out? And here in this portion, in this text, the writer is addressing that. He is demonstrating to the Jews that Jesus belonged to a superior priesthood, a different priesthood. And the Jews, of course, would have said, aha, good Bible-believing Jews that they were. They would have said, aha, but where's that in the scriptures? You can't just make stuff up. You just can't say, well, he, he belonged to a different priesthood. They'd be like, really? Well, where did this priesthood come from? We recognize and understand and appreciate that. We would have done the same. We would have said, hold on, <laughs> big man. I appreciate what you're saying. I understand it here. But where in the Bible? And the writer here goes, ah, let me, let me show you. Let me show you. It's almost like the Lord Jesus when he spoke to the Sadducees and the Pharisees on his last great meeting with them. And he said, have you not read? Do you not know that the Bible says this? For all of our ingenious and our wealth of knowledge, still there are hidden mysteries for us to look into. And here in this portion, he begins to talk about this man, Melchizedek. The portion of scripture that he's addressing is from Genesis, the first book of Moses, chapter 14. I think it's from verse 18 to verse 20. It's only a short, tiny input. What happened was Lot had been captured by these, these war masters, these four kings. Abraham then goes and rescues Lot and defeats the four kings. Taking all the wealth back with them. He goes back to Sodom. On the way there as he's approaching the kings of Sodom come out. But also the king of Salem who was Melchizedek. He was known as the priest of, the, of God Most High. A very unusual name. Not the name used by the Jews. The Jews did not use the name God Most High. Creator of the heavens and the earth. They used the name, as we would call it today, Yahweh. In the olden days, he said Jehovah. But a more biblical name is Yahweh. In ancient Hebrew, they didn't have vowels. So they didn't have the A-E-I-O-U 
and then the made up ones that you guys have at the end as well. And so we don't really know how the word for the name of God was pronounced, but as far as we can ascertain, it, Yahweh. But they would never use the name Yahweh, the Jews, that is. They considered it too holy, too scary, too precious. And so they would call him the Lord. Heren Sabbat, I think it says in, in your Bibles, doesn't it? The Lord. The Lord. But here, this man is addressed as the priest of the Lord Most High, Elonai, or El Elulin, I think it is in, in, in Hebrew, means the Most High. Like it's it's a, a, a tremendous name, and here in in Genesis chapter fourteen, when Abraham then begins to address the kings of Sodom who want to give him all the things, and he's like, "No, nah, I've taken nothing, not even a bootstrap from you, wicked people." Lest anyone say that you made me rich. And then he addresses God. He speaks to these wicked men. These wicked kings of Sodom that he has helped. As a be effect of him rescuing Lot. He addresses them. And calls God. Yahweh the Lord. As God most high. So influential. So Powerful was this man Melchizedek that he left an imprint upon Abraham and how Abraham saw and understood God and it affected how he communicated about God. So there is something wonderful and spectacular about this man. Indeed, the Bible only mentions Melchizedek four, three times really in the Bible. The first time in Genesis, first Moses book, Chapter 14. The second time a thousand years later. Through the writings of David. King David. You know David who slew Goliath. Became king. In Psalm 110 verse 4. It's a messianic promise. It's a promise not about Melchizedek. It's a promise about the Messiah. The one who would come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally. It's addressed here. In these chapters, chapter 5 and then chapter 7 then goes on. Melchizedek. See the writer of the Hebrews or the Holy Spirit through the writer of the Hebrews wants us to understand that Christ's priesthood is a superior priesthood. It's something bigger and better. It's something outside the normal scope. He's showing that even the, uh, the patriarch, as we'll go on through the rest of the chapter, Abraham, or Abram as he was known back there, paid deference, was submissive to this man, acknowledged this man as the greater. So in chapter 7, verse 1, we have... A slide of the history. He is communicating to those who are listening the story. Just in case they didn't know it. Just in case they missed it. Oh, you, you want something from the Bible? Here it is. Let me show you. 
And for we who are believers, it should be a great lesson for us to use the Bible, to communicate the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please never say, well, I think, or for me, it's just like this. And imagine stuff. I've had a lady once communicate to me how the Lord Jesus Christ is like a ballet dancer, dressed in a pink tutu with the frills. And she went on to tell me how his work is like expressional dance. And I was like, where in the Bible does it say that? And she said, well, it's not in the Bible. But I just know the Holy Spirit was explaining it to me. And I'm explaining it to you. Jesus is like a ballet dancer. And his work is like expressional dance. That's nonsense from the mind of a crazy woman. Please, believer, if you want to explain something about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, use the Bible. Because it's God's word. The Bible says of itself that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's like a pokey stick you poke someone with. It separates down to the, the, the soul, the spirit. It divides. There's nothing that can stop it. It cuts through everything. The Bible says of itself that the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. The Bible says it is the word of God that gives faith. Faith comes by hearing, understanding, and hearing what? Not the words of Kyle, not the words of some crazy woman with her belly dancer story. I'm glad you said belly dancer, not belly dancer. That would have been so inappropriate. But the words of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. So beloved. We are given a perfect example. Of, of the necessity of using scripture. To, to illustrate who Jesus is. And what he's doing. And what he's done for us. So again these Jews were being caused to worry. And to fear. To doubt. To go back and forth. About the legitimacy of the priesthood of Christ. Now, perhaps that's not an issue that you and I would, would face. The average man in the street doesn't say to you. Oh so talk to me about the legitimacy of the priesthood of Christ. Most people don't even think that way here. Do we? we, we they don't think about is Jesus legally allowed to be my priest. People don't think that. We might not face those issues. But we do face other issues. <clears throat> Here again, we're this man Melchizedek. He's what the Bible, or not what the Bible calls a type, what we call a type. He is a, a, a picture that gives us understanding of who Jesus is. Of what he will do. And this individual Melchizedek from Genesis, 1 Moses book 14 is a type of Jesus. He's a type that gives us a picture. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus used to tell stories to people? Parables. Do you remember those? A parable is a story that really has another meaning. It's a story that has a deeper meaning to it. It's not just entertaining, but if you thought about it, there was wisdom there that helped you in your life. That benefited you in some way. 
with your relationship towards God? Well, a type, a biblical type is somewhat the same. On the surface, he's just a king. He's just a priest. He's just a man. 2,000 years before this is written. But when you think about it, when you explore it, when you go into the detail of it, you find out there's something so much more there. Something deeper. This man, Melchizedek, was a king. The king of Salem. Again, Salem, as we know, was the city of Jerusalem. You ever heard of the city of Jerusalem? Slightly important city. God said, it is my city. So even before the Jews had taken over, before David had conquered it, God had a representative in that city already. A thousand years before David took the city, God had his representative there. Not just a normal person, but a king. Not just a king, but a king-priest or a priest-king. Very unusual outside of uh, in the Middle East. And certainly in Israel, never heard of. Israel never allowed the, the positions of priest and king to be together. They never met. And when, they, when, somebody, when one of the kings tried to make it happen, God cursed that king with leprosy. We see that Abraham recognized that this man was greater than he. Even though Abraham was returning from a battle that he had just defeated four kings and their armies with a much smaller force, God blessed him and enabled him to annihilate and to take all of the plunder back. When he was coming back and the kings of Sodom were coming, here comes Melchizedek. And Abraham doesn't hesitate. He recognizes this man is greater than him. He pays the tenth, the tithe. He surrenders. You are the boss and I am the servant. You are the the legitimate power and I, I, I am nothing. If Abraham acknowledges this man's supremacy this man's greatness how much more then will the should the jews the descendants of abraham those who are not as great as abraham themselves the normal jew in jesus's day or in the day of the the writer of the hebrews he didn't defeat four kings and their armies he didn't take all of his household his company if you want to put it that way and go and defeat cities Abraham was a magnificent, marvelous, exceptional individual who gave birth to a nation. And the normal Jew in Jesus' day was nothing like Abraham. And so the point is, if our descendant, the great Abraham, if he acknowledged this man as being special, how much more should we? How much more should we acknowledge this individual as being special? In verse 2, the writer tells us that Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness. Now that's a cool name to have, the king of righteousness. He reigned that in that city in right, 
righteousness. He wasn't the mighty blood splatter king. He wasn't some sort of no death bringer king. That's the kind of names that those men had back in the day, you know, put fear in people's hearts. He was a king of righteousness. And then he tells us again, and also then king of Salem means king of peace. So we have two aspects to this man. First of all, we're told that he was a priest. That he represented God to the people and the people to God. He was one who stood between God and the people and mediated. He dispensed blessings. And probably dispensed curses as well as a priest. He was the conduit, the the circuit through which God moved in that place. He was both king and priest, or priest and king. Very unusual. But again, there in that individual, we are given an insight into the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize him as being king. King of Israel. The true and real king of Israel. But also the king, the priest, the one who represented. And again, we're being demonstrated. It's being, our eyes are being opened to the, the fact that his priesthood is different, unique. As Melchizedek's was unique, so the Lord Jesus is unique in that sense. Also, an interesting little thing Abraham or should we say that we think about the the Levitical the, the priesthood those who came from Aaron they were the priests of Israel they were a national priesthood they were held to serve Israel and Israel alone they had no ability to bring redemption or forgiveness or blessing or curse to the nations outside Israel. They were constrained because of the 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 Aaronic or the Mosaic the Moser. The covenant made with Moses, my goodness, that was hard for me to say today. The covenant made with Moses, it restrained them to Israel. But with Melchizedek and the God Most High. We're seeing something international. We're seeing something greater than, than just Israel. We're, we're seeing something that goes beyond a certain place and a certain time. The Levitical priesthood was from Aaron until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And God ended the Levitical priesthood. It exists no more. He stopped it. But with Christ's priesthood, it continues. It goes on forever. And just as the difference between Aaron's priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and Melchizedek's priesthood, one was simply for a nation, the other was for all peoples. How do we know this? Because when Abraham comes... 
Melchizedek blesses him. He has the ability to bless him, to dispense, dispense blessing to one who was not of his city, not of his people, not of his culture. There's a great illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ and how the blessing of redemption that comes through him isn't simply for the Jews. It supersedes, it goes beyond the Jewish people. It goes into all nations, tribes and tongues. It goes beyond just a certain time and a certain place. It goes into all the world and all eternity. He reminds us again that he is the king of righteousness. And he says this to make the point that Jesus is the king of righteousness. To make the point that Jesus is the king of peace. Again, both being messianic promises. He's reminding them that Jesus is their righteous king. That Jesus is their king who gives peace, brings peace, ends violence, ends the trouble between, not between man and man, but between man and God. See, the peace isn't a world peace. It's a spiritual peace between us and God. Because mankind's greatest problem is not that we have wars in Ukraine or wars in Iraq or wars in Afghanistan. Those are just symptoms of our great problem. Our great problem is that we as human beings are at odds with God. We are at war. The Bible says that we are at enmity, a state of constant warfare against God. We have no peace with God. If you're outside Christ, you have no peace with God. You're the enemy of God. You've declared yourself a rebel. You will not bow the knee. You will not accept him as your king. You're on the run. You're one of those guerrilla warfare people. Not willing to surrender and submit to his kingdom. It says in verse 3 that he was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and the end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, this doesn't mean that he, that he didn't have a mom or dad. Okay? This is not saying that he, he, he came down and was just perfectly. Fully formed, you know, like Adam. It's simply saying that we don't have that genealogy. There's no no passing on. It wasn't passed on from father to son. We don't know Melchizedek's dad, who was a great king. We don't know his son, who was a great king. But rather that he stands alone. And his kingdom, we don't know that it ever stopped being. He, he, He wasn't... Reduced in any way. It's very interesting that this word without genealogy is only used here. The writer made it up. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. And indeed it's not used anywhere else in Greek literature. In the Greek language it exists only here in this text. Uh, That encourages me. Gives preachers to make up words whenever words don't fit. 
Yes, praise God, hallelujah. I do that all the time. I apologize. But I have biblical license now. When I was looking at this, and I thought to myself, well, was this a slight dig at the Jews? Because there were always the rumors circulating about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that he had genealogies. In the Bible, we have the genealogy of Joseph, and we have the genealogy of Mary, and his kingly taking his family tree all the way back down to Adam. But there were always the rumors that Jesus was born illegitimately. We know that Joseph was his adopted father, his legal father. But there were always the questions. Remember where the they, the, when the Jews were talking about Jesus. So we know where this guy comes from, but we don't even know where, where Jesus comes from. And they were always making allusions to his questionable birth because Mary got pregnant before she got married. And there was always this kind of question mark and like, mm, he's illegitimate. We don't even know if he's a true Jew. We don't know who his real father is. Now you and I, of course, know that his real father was God. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive. But there were always those questions. We don't even know. When, and I was thinking to myself, and it was, I was going through this week, that it was this uh, uh, to, to silence them. To silence the mouths of all of those gossipers and questioners that they couldn't make the post on there. I don't know that as in English. Post on there. Suggestion, perhaps, that Jesus was disqualified. But we see here that the Bible says that Jesus, just like Melchizedek, was a priest forever. And that should bring us joy. You see in the, in the Levitical priesthood. A man served for 25 years. And father would, would pass it to son. And son would pass it to grandson. And grandson would pass it to great grandson. And it went on. And it wasn't based upon a man's merit. Or per, real faith. You didn't have to be a real believer to be a priest. You just had to have the right father to be a priest. And you did your time and then you passed it on to your son and your grandsons. But in Christ, Christ doesn't have to do that. He stands forever. And it's based not upon his heritage or his culture. He didn't inherit it. It's not the family business. He is a priest because of his merit. Because of who he is. Because of his faith. He, he is personally qualified. He has real and true and living faith. Jesus Christ has faith just like you and I as a man. As a person. And that qualified him. He's just like us. In that sense. But yet we know that he will, he will know. He died and was raised up in his glorious body. And now lives forever. He is in his resurrection life. And is now able. 
to serve us as a priest, as our mediator, as the one who represents us as a people and personally as individuals. That it is his life work that he will never go weary or tired in it. That he's not going to be unfaithful. You know, there are some days that we're really into stuff and then there are other days we just can't be bothered. You know, I paint models, you know, and uh, there are some days I just love it. I'll sit there for, you know, for the whole evening and paint something. And then a week goes by, I'm like, yeah, I can't even bother picking up a paintbrush. We're faithful then sometimes. So even in something that we love, we're like, nah. But the Lord Jesus Christ isn't like us in that sense. Where he goes, his life goes in waves. He is ever faithful. He is committed to do something and he does it the rest of his life. Faithfully, dutifully, happily, contently. He is for us that priest who represents us forever. And how do we know this? How then can we say that he is legitimately that priest? Because he the, the writer here, the Holy Spirit through the writer here, he demonstrates to us the legitimacy, the biblicalness of its nature, that Jesus Christ stands not as a, as a priest simply to Israel, caught within that religious system, but he's something more, something ancient, something that goes further back, even beyond Abraham. Beyond the patriarchs, goes beyond Joseph, goes beyond Adam, goes into eternity past. Jesus stands as someone unique in biblical history, but there is still biblical license for it. Encourages our heart, should encourage your heart, that as he has been doing, so he will do. Remember the Bible says, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the ancient of days. He is our high priest, and he is our king of righteousness, and he is our king of peace. And he has a legitimate reason. He is qualified. It's not just something that he made up, not just something that he kind of forced in. And made us believe, even if it was illegal, against the law or breaking the rules. He did not break the rules. He was not confined by the rules of, of the Judaistic system because he made them. His kingdom is bigger than Israel. Bigger than the Jewish system of worship. And... For us who are non-conformists, it's a wonderful thing. We're non-conformists. It means we do not conform to the way the, the Lutheran Church does things, or the Church of England, or the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholics. We're non-conformists. We believe in doing things the way we want to do them. <laughs> we, the way the Bible says we should do them. Amen. And so as non-conformists, we are not held to a, a strict 
belief about the, the priest class or the clergy, whatever they're called, you know, the, the men are priests. In the Lutheran Church, they say that the priests are the, the spiritual descendants of Levi. They are the Levitical priests of our generation. They serve today as Aaron's children did in Israel. But we know that to be not true because there are no priests in the New Testament. Jesus didn't establish a priesthood in the New Testament. Why? Because his priesthood was outside the confines of the Jewish system. You ever wondered that? You ever, you ever never wonder why we don't worship the way that the, the Roman Catholics worship? With their gowns. And, or the, the Russian Orthodox Church with their big beards. Although, you know, some of us, Miska, has those big Orthodox beards. With the robes and the big hats. I would love one of those big hats. You all know I'm a hat guy. One of those big hats with the tassels and stuff would be great. Or one of the Orthodox Jew ones with the wee things come down here. I'm all into that. But, according to the biblical system, we, we do not need those things. We're not confined or forced. We're not held hostage. Sarah told me yesterday of the Lesterian movement has made the news again. Hallelujah, praise God, amen. In that they're now talking, there's they're talks about leaving have become so serious that it's made the papers. I think it was the HBL, wasn't it? With the Hoovestad's blooded or something. I can't remember. And, um, and the Lutheran Church made this comment saying, well, that's terrible if they leave. We don't know if we'll be able to supply them with priests. I mean, that's a strange thing to say. They're talking about leaving, but you still think that you're going to give them priests. They'll want your priests. After they leave, because all of your priests are too liberal... And don't believe in the gospel. You're complaining because you don't think you'll have priests to supply their organization. Uh, the arrogance. Because they believe that they are the true and real church. Because they believe that they are the, the spiritual descendants of Israel. Because they believe that only they, they and only they have the right to mediate between God and man. And we would say that that's blasphemy. He would say that that's, that's heresy, error. It's leading people into sin. Because there are no priests in the New Testament. Christ's church is not governed by priests. We're not a theocracy. So when someone says to us from the Lutheran church, where do you get your priests from? We should turn around and say, from, from Christ. But, 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 but. Where is their legitimacy? Where is your legitimacy? You're making stuff up and still in, in, under the slavery of, of Israel's religious system. We live in the freedom of Christ's system. We have a priest who is of the order of, of Melchizedek. He is our high priest and we need no other. So again, beloved, rejoice in this that Jesus Christ has set us free from religious systems, from slavery, from being under the yoke of unbelieving men. That we are free to follow God in our conscience. That we should always remember and hold to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who represents me. The one who represents you. He is your living priest. 
So if one of these priests come and gives you a fishy handshake, I hate priests and their fishy handshake, you know, and says, I'm, I'm a priest. You say, well, I'm sorry for you. That's terrible. That's unfortunate. And then point them to the order of Melchizedek and tell them, don't you know that Jesus Christ ended the, the priesthood? Now we're in different days. You're claiming to be a part of something that Christ killed. Repent and come out of it. Be a part and enter into the freedom of the new covenant, which the writer will get to. Oh, I'm so looking forward to getting into the new covenant. Beloveds, let's end it there. Let's, let me pray for us and then we're done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, was raised up again for us and is alive today on our behalf, interceding and making known and praying and helping us more than we ever will know. Lord, we know that you are indeed our legitimate high priest. We pray and ask, O oh God, that you would help us to live in the appreciation of that, that we wouldn't be bound by religious traditions, Lord, that we wouldn't be bound and held captive by the false teachings of mistaken men. Help us, O oh God, to live in the freedom to which you have called us to be free. Lord, that we would bring glory to your name, that we would rejoice, know you, and enjoy you forever. Father, we pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.